0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the second episode of the Modern Renaissance Podcast. I'm your host, Chelsea van Heerden, and this week we'll be talking about why classical literature, despite its sometimes bad reputation, is still worth reading. Using Homer's Iliad as our compass, we'll dig into the transcendent value of literature that has survived through millennia, exploring how it not only forms our minds and imaginations, but also our souls. We'll ask why the classics are classics, how they can draw us out of our own little stories into the grand meta-narrative of human history, and whether there's any point in reading books simply because they are old. There's plenty to delve into today, so without further ado, let's get started. This episode, I called Why You Should Read the Classics, but in reality, I could also call it Why You Should Read the Iliad, because we're going to be talking about the Iliad quite a lot. During one of our earliest conversations, my now-boyfriend asked me, is the Iliad actually good, or do we simply consider it good because it's the only literature that survived from that period? In his defense, he hadn't yet read the Iliad, or I think maybe the question would have been redundant. But with as much righteous indignation as I could muster, I gave my fiercest defense of Homer's Iliad, expressing how wildly amazing it is and declaring that the classics are not classic because they're old, but because they are timeless. His question, however, was fair. What does make the Iliad a classic? And why, with so much other literature constantly getting written and produced and published, should we still bother reading this book out of all the other options? And I think the Iliad is actually a prime candidate for consideration on this topic, because it's frankly a little weird. It recounts a glorified bloodbath and the feats of ill-behaved characters, most of whom probably never existed, in a world that most of us are completely unfamiliar with, listing more names and epithets than most of us could possibly remember or care about in a language and meter that sounds antiquated to our modern ears. And it turns out that the gods of Olympus are running the whole show. Despite its strangeness, one of my first deeply memorable encounters with classical literature came when I finished the Iliad for the first time. I was 16 or 17, and after I closed the cover on that final line, and so they buried Hector, breaker of horses, I wandered out into the moonlight and cried over an age of heroism that had ended long before my life had ever begun. Dramatic, I know. But I was, it just so happens. In pretty good company. Alexander the Great's adoration of Achilles is well documented, and according to Plutarch, he slept with a copy of the Iliad under his pillow, which is a level of obsession I have not yet reached. The poet Keats, by comparison, composed a rather euphoric sonnet after reading a particularly delightful new translation of the work. And countless other men and women throughout history have drawn inspiration from Homer's epic for art, poetry, film, and literature. You can see it in so many places throughout our culture today. Much about the epic can and has been debated ad nauseum, but for those of us who dabble little in Homeric criticism, and thank goodness, the Iliad remains much as it always was, even while Alexander the Great was reading it. The exquisite English translations that we have preferring its delights upon the modern reader with little less beauty than the classical Greek. I love Robert Fagel's powerfully rendered opening lines. Rage, goddess, sing the rage of Peleus' son Achilles. Murderous, doomed, that cost the Achaeans countless losses, hurling down to the house of death so many sturdy souls. And although I have yet to read it in full, Alexander Pope's poetic translation also sounds gorgeous. Achilles' wrath to Greece, that direful spring, Of woes unnumbered, the heavenly goddess sing, that wrath which hurled to Pluto's gloomy reign, The souls of mighty chiefs untimely slain. It may even capture something of the beauty of the original Greek, and you're going to have to excuse my pronunciation. My Greek is a little rusty right now. Menin Aide Thea, Peleideo Achilios <laughs> sulomenen. Himuri akaios polas disptimos psukas prioaspen heroan. Not as rusty as I expected, actually. As a side note, now that I've gone over those translations, I really want to emphasize that if you are going to read the Iliad or any other Greek literature, translation really matters. The Iliad is an epic poem. And a good translation should have a poetic meter. I'm not really sure, and call me a snob, that prose translations really count. So I would absolutely highly recommend Robert Fagel's if you're reading the Iliad for the first time. Or if you do actually prefer some rhymed meter, Alexander Pope's poetic translation sounds gorgeous. That aside... I would argue that it's not necessarily the poetic brilliance of the Iliad that has gripped the souls of readers who are separated by language and culture across time and space. In fact, it seems to matter very little whether one reads the original Greek or enjoys a graphic novel rendering, and there are some fantastic graphic novels. The effect in either case remains much the same. The epic seems to strike at the very marrow of what it means to be human. In a way, the soul, forced to transcend from the confines of a single little life and see itself within the great expanse of history, longs, if only for a moment, to incarnate the greatest of what it means to be human. I think this is precisely why, after I did close that final page, I wandered out into the moonlight and wept over that lost age of heroism. It was because something within me was actually reaching beyond myself and understanding that The Iliad had captured a fundamental element of what it meant to be human. It's not in this sense great because it's necessarily imagination stirring, although it certainly is, but because the Iliad at its most fundamental level, I believe, is soul forming. I use the term soul forming to quite literally denote the capacity of literature to make an imprint on our transcendental souls. Now, some of us might balk at the use of this term because it does sound almost mystical, and that's certainly not what I'm trying to get at, but I do want it to sound transcendental without having that perhaps excessively mystical elements. I believe that transcendent souls exist and that literature can have an impact upon them. Part of the reason that we're so careless with soul-forming literature, with the the very notion of soul-forming, however, is because we've largely, as a society, ceased to believe in the existence of a soul. It's easy to overlook and abuse something you refuse to acknowledge. We don't, by ignoring our souls, banish their existence. We may corrupt, but we cannot destroy. The effects of this reality can be seen in the collective soul of our culture, which I've written about elsewhere and need not delve into again here. Suffice to say, we do profound damage when we treat as though it does not exist, the part of ourselves which most fundamentally underpins our existence. Our souls will be formed whether we acknowledge them or not. The question is merely how. To reference another classical piece of literature that I think everyone should read, we could turn to Plato's dialogue Phaedrus. In this dialogue, Plato describes the soul as a chariot pulled through the air by two-winged horses. One is noble and seeking to fly towards the heavens, and the other is corrupt, attempting to drag the chariot and the charioteer towards the earth. The charioteer is attempting to drive the horses, wrestling with their conflicting wills. If he puts before them what is good, true, beautiful, and just, the wings of the horses will grow and they will rise upwards. However, if they're exposed to what is debased and corrupt, what is unjust and what is ugly, their wings will shrink until the chariot is inevitably dragged back to the earth because the horses can't sustain its flight. So too, Plato suggests, the soul. It is formed by what it is fed. Either it will be sustained and elevated, or it will be tainted and made ignoble. Souls, in a very metaphysical sense are what they eat. This then brings me back to the classics and I think my thesis right now should be rather obvious. I read the classics and I promote the classics and suggest that anyone who can should read them because literature is soul forming. It's well enough to read airport paperbacks to pass the time on a transatlantic flight or while stretched out in the summer sun. I love a good thriller and Throughout my summers, I often grab a lot of different literature and have a very eclectic taste in what I read. But how would I fare if my literary diet consisted strictly of thriller or fantasy? Over the course of a summer, perhaps, the effect would be hardly noticeable. Even our physiques are the result of diet compounded over time. So too with the soul. Our souls must be nourished if they are to be sustained and they must be nourished well if they are to be elevated. As vegetables are to the body, so are classics to the soul. In fact, we could consider classics perhaps the broccoli of the soul, which sounds really unflattering, but alas. This latter claim demands something of a defense, partially because we no longer hold to the presumption that the classics are better merely because they are classics. Contemporary societies imbued with a hefty dose of what C.S. Lewis deems chronological snobbery, the presumption that new thinking, values, and beliefs are superior to the antediluvian modes held by earlier generations. Classics are, as a result, often regarded as outdated or irrelevant at best, and increasingly in our day and age, as racist or misogynistic at worst. Incapable of adding anything of value to our lives, and perhaps worth little more than to be used as kindling for a fire. What, we might rhetorically ask, is the value, after all, of teasing out Socrates' convoluted questions on justice, or of following Dante and Virgil's journey into the inferno, of painstakingly translating Xenophon's Anabasis from its original Greek, in a world that's marked by wars and protests, social transformation and technological progress, civic disunity and political polarization, why should we bother reading Plato or Petrarch or Locke or Dante? To this, the answer is simple. We should read the classics precisely because that's the world in which we live. Truth, goodness, and beauty are not transient. It's true. We don't live in the Greco-Roman Empire, in Renaissance Italy, or in Enlightenment France, and yet we nonetheless occupy at the most fundamental level the same world inhabited by Plato, Petrarch, Locke, and Dante. A world in which the questions, what is true? How ought we to live? How can justice be determined? Are no less important than they were at the very dawn of human history. Where chronological snobbery demands that we answer these questions ourselves, Turning to the classics allows us to enter humbly into a timeless dialogue with people who have wrestled with these questions way before us. The books that have survived from the periods preceding our own, like the Iliad, have been deemed by a democracy of mankind to possess sufficient transcendental meaning so as to be worth sharing and worth preserving. These now make up what we call the classics. To put this another way, the Iliad's not good because it survived the ruthless winnowing of history. It survived the ruthless winnowing of history because it is good. Similarly, Plato hasn't survived because his dialogues are simply old or they were simply there. There was a time when not even Plato's dialogues were considered classics. Rather, Plato has survived because his dialogues were deemed timeless. They were deemed capable of transcending time and culture to shed light on enduring questions that we all have and that we always will have. It may then be asked, very well, there may be value in classics that speak enduringly of the good, the true and the beautiful. But what about those that don't? What about books that say little, if anything, about such timeless virtues? And this is a fair question. Still, I would argue that there's even value in old books on the sole virtue of their oldness. I speak here as a student of history, having spent many long hours poring over admittedly dry historical passages for the vague purpose of understanding some civilization far removed from me and with little practical interest to anyone else, or very few other people at any rate. I'm not even sure that my thesis will be read by you know what, I just won't finish that sentence. (laughs) Yet the burden of reading history, even as a student, is imbued with its own meaning. And that's of learning to value the human experience during periods other than our own, not because it's beneficial, but because it's shared. And this is something really, really important, that sometimes you can study something not simply because it is beneficial to you, but because it is shared with others. I have very little in common with, for example, the Qumran community of Second Temple Judea. And that's precisely why reading the Dead Sea Scrolls is valuable, because doing so demands that I transcend above the presumption that mine is the only world that matters. The stories of others are valuable on their own merits, regardless of whether or not they actually add any explicit benefit to my own life, because they relentlessly remind me of the shared humanity that we have amidst striking difference. So why then should we read the classics? I've said a lot here, but if we could narrow it down to a few different ideas, I would suggest that first of all, because we're human, because we have the same questions and the same curiosities, as those who've preceded us, and indeed the same questions and curiosities of those who will follow after us. Perhaps because our stories are not the only stories that matter, and because it's important to transcend our little lives and dare, if only for a moment, to embody the greatest of what it means to be human. Justice, courage, wisdom, charity. Perhaps we should read the classics because the things that matter most are the things that have always mattered most. And perhaps, most importantly, because our souls will be formed, whether intentionally or carelessly. And because we are the charioteers who guide them. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Modern Renaissance Podcast. I hope you've been inspired and delighted by our discussion today. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please consider subscribing, sharing the podcast with friends or family members whom you think you would enjoy it, and leaving a rating or review. To stay up to date with the Modern Renaissance and access more content, head over to the website modernrenaissance.ca. Once again, thank you for joining me. I look forward to joining you again for our next episode.